to another episode of Future Nation. Are you telling me that you built a time machine out of a DeLorean? Where we speak with some of today's brightest innovators and explore the future of disruptive innovation. Let's go. Here's your host, Daniel Callow. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of Future Nation. I am your host, Daniel Callow. Today, I will be speaking with Marshall Hughes. Marshall has a 25-year background in freight and logistics. His expertise in logistics operations and passion for solving complex problems creatively led him to build one of the world's first platforms that connects shoppers with shoppers. Leveraging underutilized resources and tapping into the booming sharing economy, Marshall's platform Parcel is leveling the playing field, providing physical presence retailers an opportunity to better compete with their online competitors. I introduce to you Marshall Hughes. Hello, Marshall, and thank you very much for being on Future Nation. Hello, Daniel. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, Marshall, tell us a bit about yourself. Currently, I am the CEO and founder of a company called Parcel, which is an on-demand delivery service where we get shoppers to deliver to shoppers. So my background, I worked for 25 years in freight and logistics for a company that used to be called Post Haste, which was a freight broker. But about say 10 to 12 years ago, we found that there was a gap in the market. I read a book called Blue Ocean Strategy, which I recommend everyone pick up and read. And it talked about the blue ocean being where the freshwater is, where there's no sharks and where price becomes irrelevant because you're creating something that doesn't exist. An example they give is Cirque du Soleil, where people are now paying 500 bucks to go to the circus. And as a freight broker, we were in the red ocean where there's lots of sharks, there's lots of blood. And the only way to compete was usually by taking business from other people and being cheaper. And we hit upon the idea at Post Taste of combining a tech management platform into our brokerage, and we called it Freight Management, and changed the company name to My Freight. And when I started working on that, I started meeting all these tech people. And I think up until that point, I hadn't really understood what was it possible and sort of been limited more by what I knew. Yeah. Um, I mean, these tech people basically just opened my eyes, hanging out with cooler people, and we could see what happened. My Freight uh, continued on and continues to this day without me, which is great. So two and a half years ago, I left to found Parcel. The idea for Parcel, though, goes back about five years. In logistics, supply and demand is the challenge. And as a on-demand service, your challenge is to have enough drivers available to do the work, but at the same time, not have too many drivers on that your costs go up or that your drivers lose interest. Yeah. The classic way of looking at that is if you look at Uber with surge pricing. Surge pricing dampens demand because people go, well, I'm not going to pay more than I have to pay. But it also increases supply because drivers go, well, I might as well hang on and do another hour shift because I'm now getting paid more. It's a fine balance. It is a fine balance. And in career, it's really hard to do. If you don't pay drivers enough, they'll go and work for someone else. Yeah. If you pay drivers too much, then your customers won't use your service. Yeah. And so I thought, well, a solution to this perhaps is not to worry about having any drivers at all unless you need them. And so the original pitch for Parcel was that you'll be wandering around Bunnings one afternoon and your phone will ping and it'll say, hey, Daniel, we can see you're in Bunnings. Marshall, who lives around the corner, has just ordered a drill. If you grab that on your way out and deliver it on your way home, then we'll pay you 10 bucks. And I just assumed that at some stage someone would do this. And when I left my freight nearly three years ago, no one had. So I thought I'd have a crack. Marshall, you identified an opportunity. How did you then prepare yourself as an entrepreneur to turn that idea into a product? A parcel was an idea, um, and I was fortunate enough to get into a course called the Founder Institute. It's a global organization, a not-for-profit run out of the States, where they put potential founders through a intense 12-week course. It's 50 hours a week. The idea being to prepare you that if you go it on your own, this is what's going to happen. Of course, they underestimated the amount of time you need to spend on a business because 50 hours a week isn't enough. 
But the very first thing we had to do was to call up potential customers yeah. and say, we think there's a problem. What have you done to solve it? Has that worked? If it hasn't, here's my idea. Would you pay for it? Yeah. And one of the things that if you don't get the correct answers to those questions, then the Founder Institute says you've got to dump the idea straight away. Right. Because if people don't agree it's a problem, then you don't have a business. If people have tried things and fixed it, then you don't, unless you're massively cheaper or massively better that you don't have enough room. Um, and if they won't pay for it, except in some social circumstances, you don't have a business. Yeah. So they were really hard on that. So and it was quite challenging because I believed this and loved it and said it was going to be a great thing, but actually actually ask people, which is, there's a fear factor because if they had said no, then it'd be all over. Who are your clients currently or who were your first clients that you had on the platform? So our very first customer was called Pookie Poiga. Cool. And Pookie Poiga is a little store in Bridge Road, Richmond, where the owner came to us and said, when you're ready, we'd like to give this a shot. Our second customer was a customer called Pure Baby, which is organic cotton baby wear. And they were great because it was a chain, the Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane stores. That was a really good opportunity to launch. And everyone loves it because it was baby wear. We were lucky enough to get on Channel 7 News when we launched with them. So they were our first two customers. Since then, we've expanded to a few more. We're still in smaller customers. We're waiting to sort of break into corporate world. Can you tell us a bit more about the technology that powers Parcel? The technology behind it. So we use the phone, but the phone's not the smarts. The yep. smarts, we're working with Swinburne University in Melbourne with their machine learning AI teams. And the smarts are in using the data that we've acquired to essentially create a expectation of where people are going to be. Right. The system works best when the person who gets the message is in the right place at the right time. Yeah. And the more often we do that, the better engagement we have with our passers. That's where the smarts are. So by leveraging the power of AI, you are essentially attempting to predict somebody's behavior, somebody's walking patterns. Tell us a bit more about what's involved in accomplishing that goal. How do you put together a predictive model that works? Yeah, so this is where the magic happens. So we are creatures of habit. Most people do similar things every day. The goal with Parcel, and this is where the Swinburne guys come in, is that you won't need to be near the store now for us to know that you're likely to be near the store in the future yep. and then potentially go and do this delivery on your way home. And that's the goal. So Chadston Shopping Centre in Melbourne, for example, is massive. Yeah. Um, and even being in Chadston Shopping Centre doesn't actually mean you're anywhere near the store Yeah. because it's something like a 15-minute walk side to side. But through the data and through the things we learn, the expectation is that we will learn about each individual and say, okay, um, you're likely to do these behaviours over the next three hours. One of the targets for passers is the people who work in retail, who often work short shifts for not a lot of money, might be on 20 bucks an hour. And here's an opportunity to make an extra 10 bucks a year in your oh, shift. yes. But if someone usually works until four o'clock on a Saturday, I shouldn't be sending them a delivery at noon, even if it's for the next door neighbour, because we need to know that they're not likely to leave Chadson Shopping Centre until four o'clock. How long has the sharing economy been around? And what do you believe are the fundamental driving forces? I think the sharing economy's always been there. Knocking on your neighbour's door and saying, can I borrow your lawnmower? is the sharing economy. The sharing economy isn't anything new. I believe it's something that's fundamental to society. Yeah. You know, how long have we been sharing for? Probably thousands of years. Yeah. You look at what Australia was like before 1788 and the people were sharing the resources. They were hunting the wallabies and shepherding the wallabies and those sort of things were going on. So it's nothing new. What's new is now that we've got this magic of the phone, which enables us to do everything we did previously, but on a much bigger scale. Yeah. And that's where the real kick is coming in. I think one of the things that's made it heightened now is the environmental 
concerns the fact that we just, especially in Western society, consume way too much and just have way too much excess capacity. Yeah. You know, I've got a two-car garage. We can't even fit the cars in the two-car garage because it's full of a whole bunch of other stuff. You mentioned tools. Tools is like the holy grail of the sharing economy. And if anyone can ever crack how to make tool sharing work, that's like, that's a revolution. Yeah. Because most of us buy the drill, use it once. Use it once. Sits in the garage forever. Yeah. Um, I don't mow my lawns daily. So, you know, why, why aren't all my neighbours using the same lawnmower? Marshall, we hear a lot about the gig economy and the sharing economy. What are the fundamental differences between the two? Uh, the gig economy essentially is people decide that for a period of time, it might be five minutes, it might be five hours, they're on the clock and they want to make money. Yes. Um, so an Uber driver, for example, activates the app, gets in the car and says, okay, now I'm on the clock. Right. It's now Uber's responsibility to make sure that that person gets paid. So they've then got to make sure the demand is there and they can get paid because if not, that Uber driver goes, well, hang on a minute, I'm going to switch to Lyft or I'm going to switch to Sherpa or I'm going to switch to Zoom to you, go people, go catch, et cetera. Yep. And what that does, it drives up the price because that person in Australia, the minimum wage is 25, 30 bucks an hour. This person's running their own vehicle. If you're the company employing them for that time, you've got to make sure that you can pay it. So that's the gig economy. And there's, a, there's things in tasking and, and whatever else or Fiverr or in uh, those things. The sharing economy is more there is some excess capacity in someone's life. Uh, yes. Um, and that excess capacity could be they've got a caravan that they only use two weeks a year. Yep. So there's a place called uh, Camplify where you can basically put your caravan up. Yeah, I've seen them. 50 weeks a year, you can make money out of it. Yep. Or there's Airbnbs, obviously. The Airbnb, uh, car next door. Car next door's another one. So I can leave my car parked there for the whole day or I can make some money on it. There's a terrific company called Car Hood, which does free airport parking. What your car is parked there, people can use your car and you can do the same. So last time I was in Sydney, for example, I drove around in someone's Hyundai i30 for a couple of days yep. and they made 30 or 40 bucks and saved on parking. Yeah. Um, so there's the sharing economy, there's excess capacity. So the sharing economy leverages underutilized resources. What are the patterns that you are seeing in regards to the people that do your deliveries? The people who do our deliveries aren't people who've said, okay, it's four o'clock in the afternoon. I want to make some money now. They're people who are out shopping and they get a message on the phone that says, um, hey, we can see you're at um, you know, Lorna Jane. Can you grab a pair of tights, deliver it to your next door neighbour and we'll pay you 10 bucks. So it's a different mindset. And what that allows us to do is we don't have to pay them $35 to do the delivery. We don't have to compensate them for the next 45 minutes of their time. So they're essentially doing something on their way home. And the goal for us is that they would be the, as little inconvenienced as possible. Many people tend to compare the business models of sharing platforms with platforms like Uber Eats. Is the marketplace large enough to sustain these differentiated players? What are the fundamental differences that place sharing platforms such as Parcel at an advantage over platforms such as Uber Eats? The marketplace is big enough for all sorts of businesses and Uber Eats doesn't work as anything but it being a gig economy thing. Because when I want my fish and chips, I don't want to wait. And I want to know that Uber Eats is making enough money out of the restaurant. I can pay the driver well enough that the driver will jump in a car or a motorbike, grab my fish and chips and drive it straight over. So that's an important part of it. We just think that with retail in particular, we don't need to be that urgent, which gives us some flexibility, which means we can use the people who are going to go home at some stage anyway. Do you see, for example, the business models of traditional freight companies and couriers as something that may eventually be replaced by sharing technologies? Or does sharing simply provide another option for consumers? 
the career industry, especially in Australia, is necessary and there's you need a professional career. If I'm doing legal documents and if I don't get them to the court by 11.45, I'm not going to entrust them to someone who's out shopping. I want a guy to jump on a bike and go and do that as a dedicated task. You talk to florists about their deliveries. So if someone's going to be doing 30 deliveries in the next three hours, then you get a professional on it. We talk about the last mile or the final mile in e-commerce and we talk about it being congested. Yes. Because there are a myriad of options. So you can have it delivered to the post office, you can have it delivered to your front door, you can deliver it to the 7-Eleven, you can go and pick it up from the store yourself. All these are necessary parts because the consumer is expecting that they'll be given many more options. So we're not a replacement for those options. We're more, um, there are times when people choose not to or cannot go to the local store. You know, I really need that drill, as I was saying before. Do I really want to have to lock the car, lock the garage, put all the tools away, drive down there, might lose it two hours' time, or do I want someone to deliver it to me for 15 bucks? Even putting on-demand delivery as an option of the shopping cart, even if the customer doesn't choose it, it actually increases conversion rates. Wow. Yeah, consumers like to feel empowered. They like to feel like they're in control of the transaction. Yeah. And you can be ridiculous. There's some, I won't name the retailers, but there's some there, there's 15 different options for delivery. Yeah. And that's just overwhelming. You can have it in seven days with Aussie Post. You can have it, say, in two days with an airbag or a courier. You can have it in three hours or you can come and get it yourself. You get pretty good conversions then. Yeah, definitely. This technology essentially provides consumers with more delivery options. Does that make it a disruptor of the delivery industry or a disruptor of e-commerce? In other words, if you had 10 orders, would that be 10 less deliveries for a competing courier or 10 less sales from a competing e-commerce store? What the data suggests is that those purchases aren't happening. We're not doing 10 deliveries that were going to happen through another format. We've given the retailer 10 more sales. Yep. So depending on which data um, suits your needs, there's data that says up to 70% of shopping carts go abandoned and half of those go abandoned due to dissatisfaction with the delivery method that the retailer is offering. Right. We've done deliveries, for example, where we've had a booking at four or five o'clock on a Friday afternoon to deliver a little black dress. And you just know that the person who wanted that dress has nothing to wear tonight. And so she's made a decision, either wear something I already have, I'm not happy with that, or my store, in this case, Evergreen in Mornington, can get me that dress within three hours. I can shower, get changed, do my makeup, the dress will be there, and then I can go out. She wouldn't have bought that dress otherwise. Yep. And that's where we think that we give the opportunity for the brick and mortar stores to fight back against the Amazons. And that's where the disruption might be. Where are you seeing the innovation pathways in relation to the sharing economy within retail? Is Beacon Technology gaining ground in this space? Yes, you've got to stick to your knitting. So retail is a pretty exciting place at the moment because there is a bucket load of money being spent most of it overseas, but it'll trickle over here into Australia eventually. There's a stack of stuff going on. So Beacon Technologies, a company called Browse, B-R-A-U-Z, who we're looking to partner with to use the Beacon Technology perhaps to alert passers that there's a delivery opportunity or alert people this is a store there might be delivery from, or even let people know that when they go home, that store they were in previously, now they've got a bit of FOMO, they really should have bought the pair of trainers. Now they can order them and get them delivered in three hours. The key thing there is we're not big enough and very few companies are to do all the innovation ourselves. So I'm not building hardware because it's not my thing. We're not even doing in-store, but we can talk with the companies that are doing Beacon. There's a company startup called Tilly, for example, which is basically turns your phone into a cash register you can use in any store. This is some potential for us to partner with Tilly to perhaps do deliveries for people who got home and realised they really should have ordered that thing they didn't order. Or perhaps we could pay people via their Tilly account, for example. Yeah, It's important for us to be open to the discussion and then basically leverage what other people have done. 
Yeah. There's a stack of work being done in store fulfillment. So typically, again, not to go too nerdy, but most Australian retailers are shipping their e-commerce stock from the warehouse. Yeah. So if you do a click and collect at many stores, they'll say, no worries, it'll be ready in two days. Well, I just ordered a t-shirt, but that's because the t-shirt's coming from the warehouse, going to the store, and then you can go and collect it. There's a whole bunch of people now who are working on that. How do we get the store stock to integrate with the e-commerce stock? Yeah. How do we deal with the fact that there's shrinkage? Because shoplifting is apparently still a thing. How do we deal with the fact that Daniel might have picked up that shirt, yeah. but the store will still think it's in stock because you haven't put it through the cash register? So we need to partner with those companies that are doing those things so that to enable our technology to work. Yes. Um, and so what we're finding now is we become part of a stack. So you know, Parcel is doing its thing. The ERP or the e-commerce management platform is doing their thing. You've got a warehouse management in there. Beacons, pretty much anything short of drones, I'm happy to partner with. We've talked about solving problems in retail. Where else are there current applications of the sharing economy? And have you considered expanding services past retail? I don't think it's in Australia yet, but Waze, the navigation app, allows for carpooling, but it's not Uber-style carpooling. It knows where you're going. And then someone who's going to be on the route, you can pick them up on the way. The offset to them is they only pay a small amount, but the inconvenience to you is lessened. There are definitely a lot of available options. One of the things that we talk about is there's 7.6 billion potential passes on the planet. Yeah. And for us, retail is just the starting point. We want to get car parts, for example. You mentioned hardware earlier. So there's a whole bunch of different areas we can get into, perhaps social services. You know, Mrs. Jones needs someone to knock on her door and make sure she's all right. We can predict that Daniel's going to be near Mrs. Jones's place in the next 20 minutes. Send you a message saying, can you just go and knock on Mrs. Jones' door and make sure she's okay? How do you believe organisations can leverage this sharing economy to better utilise their under-allocated resources? Yeah, it's, it's, I think surprisingly the answer to that is to get the accountants involved. So the accountants are aware of where too much money is being spent for too little output. Where have we over-engineered this business? Where have we over-allowed? Where are our warehouses too big, for example? So you can run your own warehouses or you can rent space in someone else's warehouse. What are we doing? We're a seasonal product. We only sell surfboards, yet for eight months a year, our warehouse is two-thirds empty. So what should we be doing with that? Should we become part of the sharing economy and jump on space I share and lease out that excess capacity? Or should we go and do the opposite and go into that somewhere else? So the accountants would be really, really good people to say, what are we doing? Someone's done an audit and said, okay, we've got 32 vehicles in our fleet, but we should only be running 16. We could be sharing with someone else to do that. Office space is a big one. Oh, definitely. Why are there only six people on this floor? (laughs) Why do we have this floor? Yeah. Why do we have staff members commuting in from Croydon, Frankston and Dandenong every day, burning two hours of their own time a day to come in and sit at a desk for eight hours? Yeah. How can we better utilise that capacity at a head office? What could these people be doing otherwise? Marshall, you and the team at Parcel are very creative and forward-thinking. What advice would you provide others to better foster both innovation and creativity within their teams? When you talk to startups and, and founders about creativity, it's really we make it really easy for ourselves because essentially we're making it up as we go along. If you're a startup, you don't know what the outcome's going to be. You believe what the outcome might be, but you don't know and you don't know how to get there. And of the 50 different options on the table right now, we don't know which one's going to work. So the culture there is, well, we've just got to try something. You've got to do something. Yeah. And we've got to try something. So you de-risk it so no one gets killed. And then you figure it out as you go along. Where it becomes that sort of innovation or um, empowerment becomes a challenge is when you've got an existing infrastructure or an existing business. Yeah. So this is what happened to us at MyFreight. We had this great, profitable, successful business. Why the hell would you want to try and do anything different? And the way that 
we empowered people to help make that happen is that you said that we don't know what the future is going to be. And anyone who sits around any board of any company in the world and says, I know what the future is going to be like in five years is delusional because we just don't. Yeah. We have no idea what's going to happen. Like the, the extreme is Donald Trump. Five years ago, no one thought that was going to happen. And it was a joke for comedians and now it's going to happen. So how do you predict for a world? How do you, how do you act in the world? Yeah. And the only way to do that is to say to your teams that we will protect you. We will protect you from making mistakes because we know that if enough of you are thinking about different ways of doing things, then we will succeed. So in a corporation, particularly, you've got to protect the career path. So if you decide to put someone in charge of a skunk works and they come up with 10 crap ideas, that's okay. You're succeeding because we put you in that job to come up with ideas because 11 ideas might be the golden goose. So you've got to empower them. You've got to trust them. This is why you need board support. Yeah. You need a visionary CEO and whatever else. You can't penalise for failure, obviously. No, and it's and that's why it's, it's hard in a corporation because people are on the track. They've gone through uni. They might have an MBA. They don't want to go off into the team that might fail. Yeah. Because that's that's career death, man. That's I don't want to go there. Yeah. And so by doing that, you've got to have a culture that doesn't punish people when they fail. Yeah. We had a rep once who made a mistake and the mistake cost us five grand. Yeah. And he was a junior. You don't punish the kid for making the mistake. How the hell do we have a system where someone who was a junior could do something that costs us $5,000? Yeah. So essentially what we did then is we actually got him to go and build a better system to prevent that from happening again. Fantastic. You've got to be able to prepare to lose money in disruption and in innovation, but you've got to be prepared that you're not going to lose your people. Yeah. The people have to be trusted. They have to be empowered to go and, and do whatever it is. You always set boundaries. But you can't have a boundary that says you've got to put forward a, I need you to do a three-month white paper on it before you start. That's the challenge for, for a larger corporation is to do that. How quickly can you push it through? Let's talk about your personal strategies for success. What does your day-to-day life look like and what do you do to remain both innovative and productive? I think anyone who you ask this to, the mind and the body aren't different. Yeah. So if you're not healthy and you're not fit, it's hard to do anything. Yeah. Um, you burn through, especially as a, a startup founder and entrepreneur, you burn through a, a serious amount of energy every day, a lot of emotional energy, yeah. uh, a lot of brain energy and whatever else. And sometimes just I've literally worn out, worn out pairs of shoes. So it's the basics, right? Get enough sleep, get up early and exercise and eat well. It's not rocket science. Um, I actually do my, one of my side gigs is I coach on a platform called coach me and I coach productivity. And we talk a lot about having really healthy, beneficial habits. And there's little things like don't check email before breakfast, because what email are you checking before breakfast? That's so important. Enjoy that time with your family, if you've got one or just enjoy that time to yourself. Yeah. And also the ability to switch off is really important. So I run and when I run, I don't know what I'm thinking about when I get back from the run. So I may have switched off, but I've had that sort of healthy mind time. So really the core comes down to looking after yourself. And there's a fair bit of mental health studies going into entrepreneurs and founders now and rather self-delusional, always self-delusional at the fact that we're not self-delusional. Um, but also there's, you know, we go through depression and you know, up and down the wave and whatever else. So again, I mentioned before I'm in a co-working space. This is like my, it's like my, um, my counseling group. Uh, you know, don't try and do it on your own. Yeah. Um, in a corporation, it's sometimes hard because you go through HR and people think you're weird. You go and tell someone that you've, you know, you're not feeling happy. And people think that there's a fair bit of stigma around that. Yeah. Uh, so it's important to have other networks and whatever else to be able to do that with. What tips do you have in preparing yourself with a more innovative mindset? 
Yeah, so I've got, I've got the advantage in that I know that if we don't do this, no one else is going to do it. Yeah. And so I have no choice. So when I get up in the morning, I've got to start working because I've got to make this happen because no one else is doing it. Yeah. No one else in the world is doing it. So we've got to make it happen. Our economy needs sharing. We can't have more pollution from more vans and those things. So that, that's where the drive comes from. How to be, I guess, open to that thinking is just to read and listen, right? Yeah. Listen to podcasts. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, listen to podcasts, make some notes from the podcast, follow up. So one thing, you probably heard this before, I don't listen to news radio. I don't watch TV news. Right. You know, I'll grab the age and skim through and, and grab some articles, but don't bury yourself in other people's problems. Yes. Um, be aware of what's going on without being becoming involved in it. Yep. If anyone's listening to this who has kids, they're already there because kids just completely change everything and they divert your focus for all those things. Yeah. No one is switched on all the time. No one can do one thing 24 hours a day. So use the time, use as productive downtime. Yeah. And give yourself that space to be visionary, if you like, or read some stuff that you wouldn't normally read. Do a bit of science fiction or fiction or, um, you know, do something different. Uh, Thank you very much, Marshall. That's some fantastic advice there. And for our listeners that want to get more information about Parcel, where could they head over to? Parcel, P-A-S-S-E-L dot com dot A-U and all our contact information is there. Okay, thank you, Marshall, for taking the time to be our featured guest today on Future Nation. We appreciate your openness and thank you once again for sharing your experience with us. No, thank you. I was flattered to be asked and I hope that they've got some benefit out of the interview. We are always looking for innovative and interesting people to be on our show. If you or someone you know would like to share their experience and be a featured guest on Future Nation, head on over to futurenation.co and click on Apply to Be a Guest. If you like this episode, please subscribe to receive future episodes as they are released. Once again, thank you for listening to Future Nation. Thank you for listening to Future Nation. Hey, no problem, buddy. Head on over to futurenation.co. What for? For show notes and more. Oh, and don't forget to share and subscribe.